Good morning again. And if you would open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've been sort of our summer study has been 1 Corinthians and we're not far from drawing it to a close. My goal is to get through 11 and then we'll uh, we'll pause. This morning is about conscience. You have one and I have one. Our, our conscience is like a moral compass. Guides us. Um, it helps us filter our perception of right and wrong. And everyone has a conscience. Uh, and yet, we, all, we often come out on a different side of an issue with others, which means while the conscience is something that guides us, <laughs> it can also misguide us. Meaning a person can have a better conscience than another person. To simply rely on conscience is, uh, is a precarious sort of argument as far as sort of navigating the world of right and wrong because I mean, there are just so many opinions about so many different subjects um, that if there is right or wrong, then conscience certainly seems by itself to be a little bit uh, untrustworthy. I'd like to think of it like math. Um, if you have a math problem, I remember when I was a kid, I thought the important thing was to get the answer on a math problem, the answer. But then as you got into real math, something more than just general adding and subtracting, real math, the teacher began to say, I want to see your work. Do you remember this? Where the teacher became more interested in the work than even in the answer. There were times in higher level math where the answers were actually in the back of the book for homework was doing math, and I was given the answer because the only thing that mattered was how I got to it. That's like conscience. Like, how do we get there? This, here's, a, here's a picture of a math problem. This is like conscience. Conscience is doing the work this is, I was just doodling this week. Uh, the secret of life was right there. Uh, yeah. But the conscience is sort of the work that we do to get to the answer. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is, is um, the, the importance of that in the Christian life. We're going to do long math uh, this morning. I want to show you an example of a short math. Chapter 8, verse 1 is the question. Now, concerning food offered to idols, this is the question this church has written the Apostle Paul about. What are we supposed to do? There's, we're in an environment, a highly paganized environment, and there's times that we find ourselves in a setting where food has been offered to idols. What do we do? Okay, that's the question. And the long math of the answer is all of chapter 8, all of chapter 9, and all of chapter 10. Now, if you actually wanted the answer, you could have just skipped to 10 verse 25. Never told you that. 
figured it's right in front of you. You could have looked it up at the back of the book. 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on grounds of conscience. And he goes on to give a few other very practical, I mean, the answer actually eventually comes. Eventually in all of this argumentation is an equal sign with do that, don't do that, very practical. But if you were just given the answer, hey, what do I do about food offered to idols? And I just, you just got the answer. Would that really shepherd your conscience? I mean, would you... Would you really be different if you asked the spiritual question, what about food offered to idols? And the answer from Paul came back, well, if you buy it in the marketplace and it doesn't have like a label, or, or if you buy it in the marketplace, you're fine. You, are you any different right now? Are you smarter? But as... Not much has happened, right? We get changed doing the long math on the subject. And that's what we're going to finish off today. So, uh, we've been in this long stretch of a question. Paul has approached this question of food offered to idols various different ways so far. So, the first, chapter 8, he contrasted love and knowledge. They said, hey, can't we eat food offered to idols? After all, it's just food. What's, I mean, what's food? And, and an idol's nothing. And he said, well, yeah, that's, your knowledge is true, but loving your brother is something. And loving your brother trumps the things you happen to know. And then the next sort of argument that he put in front of them was this argument of uh, his rights and privileges versus the reward that might come. So he said, don't I, you know, don't I have rights? He was using himself as an example. Don't I have rights in life that I haven't claimed? Don't I have privileges in life that I haven't claimed? Well, I haven't claimed these, he ends up saying, because there's a greater reward in doing them for free. So another rationale behind the, he's building their conscience up. Last week, we talked about freedom versus purpose. He came again, and Paul said, am I not free in all the things I do? Am I not free to do this thing or not do that thing? But in all these different cases, I actually freely make myself a servant. He was contrasting the freedom that we have in Christ with the purpose that we have in Christ. Well, today is his last approach, and today would be a good old-fashioned Bible study. So he's just going to look at the Bible and say, look at the scriptures. What does this imply? Um, at least in a certain sort of way. So let's go ahead and look at chapter 10, verses uh, 1 through 4. Now, we're going to do the whole chapter this morning, which is a lot. So um, I actually think this, this chapter processes pretty well at a jogging pace. So we'll, we'll sort of jog together with it. And... Uh, Learn what we can. This is on the subject of a church that wants to know what to do about eating food sacrificed to idols. Paul says this. Here's his Bible study. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, this is verse 1, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank 
the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Let me just stop there. Paul's Bible study is on the definitional story for the Hebrews. The most important story from the Hebrew Scriptures is the Exodus. Moses leading the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai where they entered into covenant with God and then they went through the wilderness and eventually after many mishaps and misadventures and a great deal of rebellion, they get to the promised land. Okay, That story is the defining story of of the Jews. And this is where he goes. But when he goes there, I don't know if you heard it, he overlays or tells the story in a way that has Christian-esque language. You probably heard phrases that we're familiar with in our own life, like baptized. Did you see that? Baptized. He is almost telling the story like a convert might tell their own story. How they were saved, he says, don't you know? They came through the cloud and through the sea, right? The cloud of God guided them. God parted the sea. They came through, so they're saved from Egypt. And then they were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. They were baptized into Moses, it says. So just as you and I are baptized sort of into Christ, we follow Christ, he's paralleling it. They, they followed after Moses, They ate spiritual food and spiritual drink. What does that make you think of? Lord's Supper? It's all, I mean, he's, he's simplifying their story so that it just overlays very nicely with the pathway of the Christian. I'm saved, I'm baptized, then I participate, I have communion with the Lord in the Lord's Supper. One oddity in the fourth verse, this is just because I don't want you to see it, just have a lingering question. They drink from this spiritual rock which followed them. There was a, it, was, it was Hebrew legend. So you will not find this in the scriptures. You will find this outside of scriptures, just in Hebrew tradition, that the rock that Moses struck that gave forth water, that they, they took that rock with them as they traveled and it continued to provide water. Okay, So he's just referencing that legend to say that the, the, the supernatural food and the supernatural water were with them. The food and drink followed them. And this is how he ends this, this idea, verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. I mean, the the picture actually is is they were strewn about in the desert. They were cast about. Their bodies were left in the desert. So just use the overlay. Despite the fact that they were saved, that they were baptized, that they did the Lord's Supper, you know, all of these covenantal rituals sorts of things, despite all of that, he's saying it's worth noting that few of them survived the experience. God, on the whole, was not pleased with them. That's interesting. They were saved. They were brought into covenant or commissioned. They were united with the Lord through food and drink. 
And then they were scattered across the desert to die. It leads me to imagine that a concern of Paul about the church in Corinth is that they have way too much confidence in the rituals of their Christian experience. That they have entrusted too much in these God-given means of grace and experiences over God himself. They've sort of said, well, I said the sinner's prayer and I got baptized and I take the Lord's Supper or whatever short list you're comfortable with, right? I come on Sunday and I come on Wednesday. Whatever it is, sort of the ritualistic adherence to I did this and I did this and I did this. I ought to be fine, right? And he's saying, well, it's interesting you would say that because there's this old story that defines us of people who did this and did this and did that and they were not fine. In fact... It did not end well for them at all. It's as though people are looking at the sinner's prayer or baptism. I'm just picking the obvious ones. The sinner's prayer, baptism, Lord's Supper. As that's that's what I place my confidence in. Versus what God is doing through you on account of what he's done for you. So, relying on those things versus relying on God. And this church is at risk of sort of floating away into sin because of it. Now, I'm not talking about earning our salvation. I don't think he's talking about that either. I think what Paul's talking about is a life, he's longing for them to have a life that is continuing to participate with the Lord. Rather than sort of get branded Christian and live how you want to live. I think God wants people who seek communion with him rather than take communion. There's a difference. And the warning is going to un- un- continue to unroll here. Let's look at 6 through let's, uh, 11. Okay, he's going to sort of unpack the warning. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. S- speaking of the ancient story. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for us for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. He begins and ends with, hey, these things happened or were written down for us as an example. The past, he's saying, is there in large part to serve the present. That there is, you might even say, more truth to be found in the present, looking back at the story than there might even have been in the, 
when they experienced it themselves, like what they were experiencing was ultimately going to say something more. It's serving the present. Just like you and I might even say that 1 Corinthians is serving us well. Right? 1 Corinthians is in the past for us. So we're looking at all of the Bible as sort of the past serving the present so that we might avoid these things. And then he lists these. These were the classic sins of their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the patience of God, and grumbling against the Lord. They happened. And by the way, you could look in this letter of 1 Corinthians and find these four sins are present in this church. It's as though he's, he's grabbing them out saying, be careful with your overconfidence in the Lord. Because they did these things and they fell in the desert. Idolatry, he points to the golden calf. Sexual morality, he's, he's pointing probably to when the Moabite women came into the camp and tempted Israel towards sin. Straining the patience of God, he's pointing to the time where the people complained against the Lord because of the time it was taking to get into the land, and he raised up serpents to bite them. Grumbling, he's, who knows what he's pointing to because there's so many opportunities. All of these things are surfacing in the church. Be careful lest you fall, is his warning. Now, you might be saying to me, uh, John, do you mean I could lose my salvation? I don't know if that's, I, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I assume someone is asking it. Uh, I would say this, I'm not going to give it a lot of time, but regardless, we, I think we could agree on this, regardless of whether the falling in the desert here is seen as eternal or as temporal, I think we'd all say we don't want that to happen to us. Okay? So, do I think that everyone who fell in the desert did not go to see the Lord? No, I don't think that. I think some of those things were earthly consequences. However, to sort of fall back in the, under the protective confidence of pithy phrases like once saved, always saved, seems to challenge the very nature of this entire argument. Isn't that the very thing that Paul's dealing with? He's saying to the church, you say you've said the sinner's prayer. You say you've been baptized. You say you've taken the Lord's Supper. Let me tell you a story about other people who did that and what happened to them. You hear the nature of the argument? The nature of the argument is against pithy confidence and Christian ritual. And it's towards a very sober perspective of how we're living our life. And I think, what, however you want to read that, you can't, you, you got to be faithful to that line of reasoning. He is actually dealing with a church that's lackadaisical about the nature of its own salvation with the Lord. And he's correcting them with a strong, strong warning. In fact, look at verse 12. I'm going to just read 12 and 13. I, I held off because 13 is so famous that we would have just glommed onto it and missed all the warning. But in fact, it's embedded in the midst of warning. 
Let's look at 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, this passage is famous. It's encouraging. It's meant much to me and others, people who try to pick their lives up in the midst of sin and try to wonder, is God trying to make me do that? And this passage sort of rushes in as a rescue of God's personhood to say, God is on your side. He's for you. He's not entrapping you. And he's trying to equip you to the good life. And all of that's there, and it's real, and it's present. But when you place it in this context, it also seems to have about it, like there's two sides to this now, in, this, in the context of the scripture, right? Isolated all by itself. If it was on a day calendar, where you flipped it and you saw it, it's nothing but good news. It's nothing but God's on your side, and he's not painting you into a corner. But enmeshed in this, there's another side to it. There's also another side to it. Like when it's surrounded by the warnings of be careful, it might be something like this. God is not in the business of putting you into temptation to do you in, but you might put yourself in place that will do you in. God is not trying to paint you into a corner, but you in your overconfidence might put yourself in a place where you're going to fall. Be careful. And I think most of us are familiar with that. Most of us are familiar with, in our own lives, that we've crossed lines where we feel like the Lord would have said, don't go there. Don't go there. I am on your side and I do not want you to go there or cross that line. And we do, right? And then we trip and stumble and fall and disappoint and sin. And then we say, God, how did this happen? And he said, well, I, <laughs> I never left the parking lot. I didn't go into the building. You did. And I think, I think there's, there's depth to this teaching in context. Now, all of this you might say, what does all of this have to do with food offered to idols? All of this really is about, is Paul instructing their overconfidence? Be careful with ritualistic faith. It does not stand up well. Okay, and you say, well, what does that have to do with food offered to idols? Well, this is how, this shepherding the conscience of a person has to do with dealing with what's out of place, not necessarily the issue. Okay, if he can develop, if he can deal with this, it's, it's going to come to the aid of something else. And, and he's going to turn back to the subject. So here in 14, I think I want to read, uh, I'll read for a little while here in 14. So he's coming back to the issue. And as he's coming back to the issue, what I'm going to ask you to do is to imagine, okay, on this question of food sacrifice to idols, I want you to imagine the full in this church, there is the full spectrum of questions about it from, like, when I go to the supermarket and I buy meat, how do I know if I'm allowed to eat it? Okay, a very innocent, kind of noity question. Two, all the way on the other side, like, I like to hang out with my friends. 
And every year they have this big festival to Aphrodite, and they cook really good food at the festival. So I go to the festival to Aphrodite, and these really beautiful dancers, Aphrodite dancers, bring me this food and put it on the plate. Am I allowed to do that? Okay, I want you to imagine that whole spectrum of sort of, can I eat food? Well, I can go, I can go anywhere. I can go into a bar and do whatever I want to do in a bar. I'm saved. I said the sinner's prayer and I'm baptized. I want you to imagine sort of all the way from, well, what if there's a little bit of alcohol in my, in my vinegar? Nitnoity question to, well, all the guys were going out to Hooters. And I'm a Christian. Okay? Can't I go there? Okay? That's, that's here. Okay? So let me, as I read it, have that in mind. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, this is speaking of the Lord's Supper, is it not a participation with the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That's one example he gives. Now he's going to give another example, a more ancient example, okay? An ancient parallel. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Okay, I want to, I want to give a little rationale and then I'll keep reading. He's calling forth these people who want to eat food sacrificed to idols He's calling and he's saying, I want you to think about the food that you eat in commemoration of the Lord. How does that work? When you drink the cup of blessing or when you eat the bread of the host, when you, when you participate with the Lord there, is that nothing or is that something? That's a good way to say it. Is that, just a, is that just a bunch of material nothingness? Or are you actually saying something spiritual is happening? To which obviously something spiritual is happening. He's not, I don't think, in fact, I think it will become clear. He's not saying the blood, the wine is the blood and the, and the bread is the literal body. He's saying when we do this, we participate with the Lord. Just like when the Jews would bring an offering to the altar, it says, did they not also participate with the altar? Were they not also ingrained and threaded into the spiritual action? Was it not spiritual? To which the obvious answer is, well, of course it was spiritual. And this is, to this is what he says in verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He's not, he says, listen, it's not the food. And it's not the totem pole sitting by the food. He says, verse 20, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now the implications... Right, go beyond the food. He's saying, 
when the food is being offered in a spiritual way, that whole activity is the activity of man to try to get to the spirit realm. That's the activity of man trying to participate with God or their God, okay? And he says, if it's not Yahweh, it's a demon. If it's not Jesus Christ, it's a demon. Anything that's spiritual that is not of God is demonic. And so he's saying, so it, you need to understand what you're doing. If you think that because you have Christ, you can trample on down to the temple and participate in everything, he says, it doesn't make sense that on, one, on Sunday you're drinking the cup of blessing of Jesus Christ, and on Monday you're at a festival to a pagan god participating with the demon. He says it, it just fails logic. Now, I know this might feel foreign to us because demonic activity, mostly in our context, is obscure, unseen, silent, invisible. But I, it does remain, we should at least acknowledge uh, our ethnocentric perspective there. There are many places in the world where this is highly irrelevant in its discrete language. Like the plain reading of this is helpful. In Burkina Faso, the plain reading of this is helpful. Okay? Nonetheless, the principle of this is helpful to all of us. The principle remains that when you, when you do what you do with who you do it, you are participating. When you engage in something, when you go out, when, you, when you're collect, collectively doing things, okay, the obvious, discrete, visible, de- demonic sort of connections may not be there, but we should ask in a very general way, with, with what or with who am I participating when I do something? So it may just be like a burger and a beer. Maybe there's nothing wrong with that. Fine. Why are you there? That question is a lingering question of wisdom. Why are you there? With whom? What spirit rules in that space? Okay, now maybe that sounds too spiritual for some of you. I think it's a perfectly legitimate question to say, what is the spirit of the place? What is, what is the spiritual mood that predominates the environment into which you're entering? Let that, let that rule your decision. And not so much that, well, all I was doing was getting some, some hot wings, or all I was doing was going to watch the game. Or There's a lot of times when in the discreets they look innocent, but the, Lord, but the enemy's sort of netting you in. Okay. 23. All things are lawful. By the way, 23 and 24, you can, Paul's exhaling. He's going, ah. And he's summarizing sort of where he's been over the past three or four chapters. Okay, so these are sort of one-liner recaps. You've heard these before. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Remember, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I mean, this is chapter 8 and 9 being echoed again to us, okay? So he's just summarized when, where we've been over these past several weeks. And then finally, we get the answer. I'm going to just read the whole answer to you. It's very flat. It's very practical. It's very much the engineers in the room will appreciate it, okay? You can plot this. Eat what is ever sold in the meat market without raising any question on grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's saying, it's just meat. Don't worry yourselves. It's not about the meat. 26 or 27. If one of the believers invites you to a dinner and you're disposed to go, eat what is ever set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. So somebody invites you to dinner and you go and sit down and they serve you this big steak. You do not have to go, um, can you tell me the origin of this steak? Where exactly did you buy it? Just don't have to do that. Relax. It's just meat. That is not what's defining the experience. The, there's no spiritual participation taking place over that plate of meat because it's just meat. Okay? Follow the logic here. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of what for that which I give thanks? So this third category is you're sitting down to a meal and he's serving, you're being served this flank steak, and the guy says to you, the host says to you, just so you know, my wife before the meal went up to the temple of Artemis and got this blessed. Now you don't eat it. Not because it's no longer meat, it's just meat. But because in his mind, when you eat it, you're saying something. In his mind, when you partake of it, you're participating now with Artemis. And Artemis is just a wooden fake god, but behind Artemis is a demon. In his mind, you find the blessing of that demon somehow meaningful. So you don't take it. He's saying, not your conscience, but his. You're worried about his perception of you. You're teaching him with how you live your life. That's what he's saying. Be careful how you live your life because he's watching and because he made it an issue. He, your host or your friend or, or he or she, they brought the issue out in front for a reason. Now you have to deal with that reason. It's here that we arrive at this phrase, Conscience. Conscience drives us. You, you feel Paul's teaching us three chapters of teaching to get you to conscience. Three chapters of if you know all of this, if you live all of this, then follow your own conscience about it. Do what you need to do. There's this notion, we all have conscience. It's not that his teachings invented my conscience. I had a conscience before I had his teachings. My conscience was not well informed before I had these teachings. My conscience prior needed instruction. There's a notion of like our moral compass is, is not well calibrated. 
It is not that well guided. And this is a beautiful picture of discipleship is what this is. This whole three chapter thing where Paul is carefully working in them the teachings that lead to a godly conscience. Instructs them in various ways so that then they can walk away. Can you imagine if all they had received was the answer? What would have happened? So as to food, to idols, here's what I have to say, colon. If you buy it in the market, you can eat it. If it's served to you, you can eat it. If it's served to you and someone tells you it was sacrificed to an idol, you can't eat it. Love Paul. Two things are going to happen there. Two things depending on what kind of person you are. One is legalism. The other is the, the injunction against the church for being hypocritical. Oh, here it is. If people, if people know you're eating it, then you can't eat it. But you can, otherwise, you can eat it. That's so hypocritical. Do you see the flat teaching offers nothing? There's no way to come out of the flat teaching more of a person. And the real teaching gives you conscience, gives you right-minded conscience. I find in this world, I am either, uh, I either just want the answer, can you just tell me the answer? And I feel like, I, I, don't, I can't say I feel the Lord's feelings about this, but I now have a mind that the Lord's like, well, if you just want the answer, I don't want to give it because I cannot build you up with the answer. But I say to him, but I don't have the patience to be shepherded in my conscience. So then we just float adrift, don't we? Before I read the last section, I want to offer you an assignment, something to think about, take away with. I would think this would, this would be a fruitful exercise for you. I've had this thought over the last evening. I, I think it would be really good if you took something. For parents, this will be... I think you can immediately make connection to this. Take something that you know to be right or wrong that your kids may not know to be right or wrong. Okay? And derive for them, write it down. I mean, what I mean is do the work of deriving, shepherding their conscience. Even if they never see it, even if they're young, even if they're two, just to say, how do I, tell them, how do I encourage my child towards godly sexuality, right? Don't do it. That answer doesn't help, right? How do I uh, encourage whatever that issue is for you? How, how, whatever that issue sort of is in front of you, find one and then write yourself your own letter or just bullet statements or just think about it on the back of your bulletin. Just what are the principles that guide your thinking? Because remember last week we said, it's not that you have knowledge, it's that you have knowledge out of order. How do you order this knowledge? How was God laid it out for you? Do that work for them. Because here's the thing, you are not shepherding your friends or your children or your loved ones or anybody, you're not shepherding them well with the answer. You're just not. Shepherding their conscience is the work of discipleship to which we've been called. I'll close with these last verses here, four more. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, right? Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that many, uh, that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ.
I'm going to close with this, this idea of imitating Christ. I think in the places where our conscience is not fully developed or given over to the Lord, sometimes just doing what Jesus did, like see what he did, do what he did. See how he spoke, speak how he spoke. See how he prayed, pray how he prayed. See how he loved, pray how he loved. Just do what he did. Or find, if Jesus is too esoteric or too distant or too much more holy than you, find the good Christian around you who imitates Christ and imitate that good Christian. And that alone will cultivate your conscience. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you as made in your image. So there's something about us that's so wonderful and special and godly and divine and spiritual. Every person here, the least person here, is brilliant in comparison to all of creation. And so, Lord, we come to you. We come to you in our greatness and we come to you in our imperfection, Lord. Despite all of that, we're prone to error. We're prone to wrong thinking. We're prone to sin. Lord, we have ways that we slip and fall. And on these, Lord, I pray that you would surround us with Christian brothers and sisters who would have our best in mind and that we would surround Christian brothers and sisters with the mind of Christ. Help us, Lord, to disciple the conscience well. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.